Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Please keep in mind that there's always two sides, sometimes more, to every story. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs. Not everybody will agree with them. I never want to tell any guest what to say or what not to say, so there will always be others that see it differently, and I understand that. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this, my own podcast. I'm still pinching myself. Thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. Uh, hello. Uh, this will be my last podcast for this year. Uh, I'm taking a break to recharge my batteries and spend some time with uh, one of my sisters that's come down from Cairns. I haven't seen her for two years, so it's a long time since the three of us girls have been together and I can't wait. <laughs> um, and I am also sourcing uh, some more interesting guests for you for next year. And I plan on being back in mid-January. Today I'm going to be talking about my involvement with Jeff Clark, the former ATSIC commissioner, when I was a detective with the Rape Squad in the year 2000. And a warning is required here in relation to some Aboriginal people that I'll be talking about who have passed away. So please consider if today's podcast is okay or fine for you to listen to. I've learned quite a bit about Jeff Clark 
And I'll state here and now, I've never had a conversation with him, but I've learned about him through others who had had interactions with him and what I've read and researched. What I'm going to talk about today are my recollections, my thoughts and my opinions. Just keeping in mind that it's been around 20 years since I had any involvement with Jeff Clark and the allegations made against him, but I will do my best, obviously, to correct recollect it correctly. Uh, Jeff Clark was born to an Aboriginal mother and a father of Scottish descent in 1952. He was raised by his grandmother Alice in an Aboriginal community called Framlingham here in Western Victoria. Jeff got into some trouble in his early years, in his young teenage years, and in 1967, he was convicted of robbery in company, receiving, housebreaking and stealing, and he got two years probation. In 1970, he was sentenced to 12 months in a youth training centre for assault, where he served eight months. Jeff was a good boxer, and when he was 20, he moved to Western Australia, where he worked as a builder's labourer. He also played Australian rules football for the West Australian Football League, and a brief stint in with the South Australian National Football League in 1978. Look, Jeff's been in the news on and off uh, quite a bit over the years, but recently about allegations of fraud and theft. But today I'm talking about the allegations which were made regarding uh, some sexual assaults back in the 70s and the 80s. Jeff did pretty well for himself to the point that in 2000 he was elected as the ATSIC Commissioner, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, and he travelled the world representing his people until 2004 when ATSIC was disbanded. Just a little bit of background about ATSIC for those who weren't born then and may not be all that familiar with it, but it just shows what a powerful position Jeff Clark had in those years between 2000 and 2004. The Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission was the Australian government body through which Aboriginal Australians and Torres Strait Islanders were formally involved in the processes of government affecting their lives, and it was established under the Hawke government in 1990. While ATSIC's existence was always subject to the oversight of governments who represent all Australians, ATSIC was a group of elected individuals whose main goal was the oversights that related to Indigenous Australians, who include the many Aboriginal people of Australia as well as Torres Strait Islander people. A number of Indigenous programs and organisations fell under that overall umbrella of ATSIC. In 1979, uh, Jeff Clark became the administrator for the Framlingham Aboriginal Community Trust. He co-founded the Aboriginal Provisional Government in 1983 and between 83 and 96, he was active locally and internationally in Indigenous affairs. In 1996, Jeff Clark was elected to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission Board as the native title spokesman. In December 99, he became the first chairperson of ATSIC to be elected to that position, and he served two terms in that position before the organisation was disbanded, as I said before, in the aftermath of corruption allegations and litigation involving 
Jeff Clark, which increasingly overshadowed everything else that he was doing in his ADSIC role. And these allegations included in 2001, Jeff Clark's alleged participation in a number of rapes in the 70s and 80s after being named by numerous women. ATSIC was also investigated for corruption and embezzlement of funds intended for service delivery to help Aboriginal people. Let me just go back and confirm that, that the allegations were made in 2000 or 2001 and his alleged participation was in the 70s and 80s. In 2003, in August 2003, uh, Jeff Clark was suspended as the ATSIC chairperson by the Indigenous Affairs Minister, Amanda Vanstone, and that suspension was later overruled in court. A review of ATSIC was commissioned and it was recommended that reforms which gave greater control to ATSIC to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people should be at a regional level. And at the time, the Indigenous Affairs Minister, Amanda Vanstone, stated that the review had concluded that ATSIC has not connected well with the Indigenous Australians and wasn't serving them well. Look, there aren't many times, I think you'd agree, that Liberal and Labor governments agree. However, in 2004, they did both agree that ATSIC hadn't worked well and they both pledged to introduce alternative arrangements for Indigenous affairs, retaining many of the regional and state sub-organisations to continue giving Indigenous people a voice in their own affairs and within their own communities. And on the 15th of April 2004, John Howard announced the agency's uh, abolition and basically said the experiment in elected representation for Indigenous people had been a failure. Boy, cop that, Mr. Clark. (laughs) Anyway, look, my involvement comes, as I said, all I really knew about Jeff Clark was what I'd read in the papers and the fact that he'd played, (laughs) would you believe, cricket um, in the Prime Minister's 11. I mean, that's just, you know, he was getting up there and a very powerful position in Australian politics. My recollection of when my involvement started was when I was at the Rape Squad and we'd been uh, contacted by the Warrnambool detectives to say that they're investigating an allegation by a female cousin of Jeff Clark's. And she was alleging that he'd raped her in 1981 at Logan's Beach, which was a suburb of sorts of Warrnambool. And this wasn't anything unusual for the Warrnambool CIB, uh, which in those days was the Criminal Investigation Bureau. Um to contact the rape squad, we were often called by CIBs for assistance and advice. Due to the fact that Jeff Clark was then commissioner at ATSIC, it was decided between the bosses in the rape squad and the warnable CIB that it would probably be best if it was managed by the squad rather than the locals. I suppose due to, you know, the number of considerations, including the fact that uh, there would be an enormous amount of media, of media inquiries, um, possible I don't know, maybe hysteria is a bit harsh, but the possible hysteria, let's say, of the public, all of which the rape squad were prepared for 
because we had the appropriate support, we had analysts, and we had other services available at short notice. Hence, uh, the Rape Squad took over the investigation. And again, I stress here, it's not because Warrnambool couldn't do it, it's because we had more resources uh, available to us. I took statements from the two women who uh, made allegations about Jeff Clark and their names were Carol Stingle and Joanne McGuinness. I thought I'd first talk about Joanne McGuinness and um, she provided a statement which I took and it alleged that when she was 16, she was raped by Jeff Clark and when I met her, it was around 19 years later, I found Joanne a very shy, a young mother um, with a couple of children, but she just appeared very affected by what she alleged was a rape by Jeff Clark. And I remember throughout taking the statement, she shook a lot and she just seemed so genuinely frightened of him. Uh, Joanne was, and I'm sure she still is, a very gentle, quiet, uh, respectful woman and I believed she was very credible and I believe truthful and, and kind-hearted. I had the utmost respect for her. Joanne, um, she recalled to me two incidents that she eventually was able to report. The first one was a recollection when she was around four and she was sitting on a table at her mum and dad's house and Jeff Clark was there with another man and he was like instructing this other man on what to do and what not to do in a sexual way with Joanne. And it wasn't until she gave birth to her first child that this incident re-emerged in her mind because she thought that she'd put it to the back of her mind. And this isn't uncommon for people who are assaulted as a young person to recall a traumatic event when their children become the age where they were um, allegedly abused. So it wasn't unusual for her to put that to the back of her mind. I've got to say here that the allegations that I'm going to tell you about today that were told to me have been tested in a court of law and for all intents and purposes, Jeff Clark is an innocent man. He has never been convicted of uh, rape or any sexual assault in a criminal court that I'm aware of. <laughs> um he has always maintained his innocence and he has always strongly denied any of the allegations that I'm going to um, uh, talk about today. Uh, Joanne said that with the, the incident that happened when she was four, she was so ashamed of it and to discuss it with anyone until years and years later after the birth of her, her child and she did tell her mother, but she spoke of, and I could see the fear that she had of Jeff Clark and the possible uh, retributions. Uh, Joanne also recounted 
recanted an incident where she alleges she was raped by Jeff Clark when she was 16. Now, both of these, uh, both parties, they're first cousins and they knew each other and their respective families from living in Warrnambool in that the Framlingham Aboriginal mission. What she alleges was uh, there's the incident occurred at Logan's Beach in Warrnambool in February of 1981. She alleges that he drove her there in a in the company of several others. Um, he parked the car at Logan's Beach. He pulled her from the car, violently raped her while another male watched and masturbated. Uh, she called for help. Nobody arrived. She told a friend sometime afterwards. And for various reasons, each of the potential witnesses to this alleged attack have been found to be unwilling, uh, unavailable or unlikely to be able to give evidence at any trial. One was so affected by alcohol that his memory is severely impaired and he's got no memory of the incident. Another uh, is in prison or was in prison uh, with schizophrenia and basically ineffective or cannot uh, effectively communicate. Uh, Joanne and another witness uh, hadn't been in contact with each other since the early 80s, but this other witness had no recollection of Joanne telling her of the uh, alleged sexual assault. But a short time after this alleged sexual assault, Joanne reported the matter to the police and very shortly after reporting this matter, she was encouraged by her family to travel to Perth. And look, I'm assuming this may have been due to, I don't know, maybe a bit of shame because this was in, you know, 81, a different world back then. So, uh, and I don't know the reasons, but it was possible shame. It was possible embarrassment. It was possibly just to get Joanne away from that area for a while. I don't know. But whilst in Perth, she was interviewed by a police detective from Warrnambool and he tried to persuade her to come back home to Warrnambool, but she she didn't go at that time. However, she did come back. I don't know how much later, but she did come back later. What we do know is that the police at Warrnambool didn't pursue the matter any further and it transpired in numerous uh, court cases that the file had been lost. In 1987, approximately six years after the event at Logan's Beach, she alleged that she was assaulted by Jeff Clark at a hotel in Purnham where he dragged her out of the hotel by the hair. After this, she attended the offices of a law firm in Warrnambool and she was accompanied by an Aboriginal elder, now deceased, whose name was Banjo Clark. Uh, At the solicitors, Joanne referred to the alleged rape approximately seven years earlier when she was 16. A file note at the solicitors was to the effect that the earlier episode in 81 was reported to the police, but nothing eventuated. Apparently, Joanne was distressed when uh, referring to the 1981 episode, and but her prevailing interest was to pursue a police prosecution arising from the alleged assault in 87 at the hotel in Purnham, not the 1981 incident. 
She decided not to proceed with civil action for the uh, uh, alleged assault at Pernham and was told due to the time since the alleged rape in 81 that there was nothing that could be done and so she accepted that. Joanne said she didn't report the alleged assault at the hotel where she claims Mr Clark dragged her out of the pub by by the hair because she was frightened and she'd also lost a lot of faith in the authorities. So, yeah, she was um, she, she was very I, – I get the feeling she was very confused. She'd been told there's nothing that could be done. So, you know, that was it. On She moved on. But what happened was in the year 2000 – Jeff Clark, by this stage, had risen to a position of public prominence as chairperson of uh, of ADSIC and in other areas related to Aboriginal interests. And as a result of the presence of him continually in the media, what she said was that she was reminded of the alleged assaults and that's when she sought counselling. And this is the... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. First time that she became aware of the profound effect that she believed the incident in 90, 1981 had had on her. Um, she provided a statement to me in um, May of 2000 and subsequently committal proceedings for criminal charges commenced, and this is in relation to the events of 1981. And they commenced at the Warrnambool Magistrates Court in October of 2000. 
In December of 2000, the charges were dismissed due to lack of evidence. In 2001, so so what happened at Warrnambool is it went to committal, but there was a lack of evidence, according to the magistrate, and she... So it never went any further. The the magistrate didn't believe that there was enough evidence to go to trial. I remember something about the committal where there was a lot of discussion about a white cardigan and whether somebody wore a white cardigan or not. And I know that was quite an important part that I think Joanne was saying she... I don't know, I'm guessing here, but I think it was something along the lines that Joanne said she was wearing a white cardigan and somebody else, and it was discovered that Joanne never had a white cardigan. It was something, well, quite inconsequential in one sense, but when somebody is saying, this is what I wore, for instance, and it's found that they never owned something like that, well, obviously, um, the there are cracks, aren't there? And to go to trial, all these things, you have to have enough evidence for the magistrate to believe that a trial could be uh, could be heard. So, um, but they were dismissed for lack of evidence. So it never went any further than committal. In August of two thousand and one, Joanne found some new solicitors, and they issued a writ with respect to both the 1981 and 1987 episodes, the episode at um, Purnham in 87, it was decided that there was too much of a delay between the time of the incidents and when this writ was uh, issued. And it was likely to have an impact on the capacity of witnesses to recall events and it was unlikely that any alibi could be established. So, and I tend, well, the judge concluded that, but I agree. That's a long time and we've got to think of procedural fairness here in relation to Jeff Clark and how can you try and find alibis? How can you rely on witnesses' recollections, I don't know, 20 years later. I mean, it it is almost unfair. But I have no doubt uh, that the credibility of Joanne, but it's all the other uh, supporting evidence, I suppose, that you have to take into consideration. But Joanne spoke often of her fear of reprisals from Jeff. Uh, from Jeff Clark or friends of his that she believed um, had influence. She stated that her psychological state was triggered by seeing Jeff Clark constantly in the news media. In July 87, Joanne and Banjo Clark attended some solicitors for an interview where they discussed the allegations of rape by Jeff Clark years earlier. And, and Banjo explained then to this, the solicitors about the Warrnambool CIB investigation and they believed it had stalled. Uh, he'd been told that the file had been lost and basically him and Joanne were dissatisfied with the progress and as I said, it wasn't until 2000 
after several sessions of counselling with Casa that Joanne believed that there was a connection between her emotional psychological problems and the 81 abuse. And it seems that Joanne became aware of her right to take civil action when she consulted with CASA, the Centre Against Sexual Assault, in 2000. Going back to the writ, the judges that heard this matter decided that, I think I said this, that it was no longer possible to have a fair trial and the appeal wasn't allowed. Some of the points that Jeff Clark argued via his legal team about extending the time, as I said before, it seemed fair to me and, as I said, about procedural fairness because over 20 years it expired and some witnesses may be unavailable. Uh, They may be uh, able to recall the events, unable to give evidence at trial. The fact that the police had lost uh, a file or it had been destroyed as I said, the prospect of any alibi evidence that might be called, it was just, it couldn't, it couldn't go ahead. Okay, so that's Joanne. So basically, she had, she couldn't take it any further. Uh, her, the committal um, was determined there wasn't enough evidence to take to trial. The writ trying to. Um, um, saying about the we, they were trying to get an extension of time so that they could uh, have the matter heard in a civil court. No, and that, that uh, didn't happen either. So we really, Joanne couldn't take it any further, as I said. So then we come to the allegations made by Carol Stingle. Carol Stingle and I took the statement from Carol. Uh, I went up to Queensland, I think, Queensland, for three days the statement took. Carol alleged something like six rapes in 1971, and I I think two of them, she was alleging, had um, been committed by Jeff Clark. Um. She'd said that she'd been packed, raped by him and six other men in March of 1971 when she was 16. And up until, uh, what was it, 2000, when all Joanne's uh, dealings came up in the media, Carol had never thought of taking it any further. But when she heard about Joanne's matters, that's when Carol decided to contact police Um, and she hadn't considered up until then. So I go up to Queensland and I take this statement from her and I'm only talking here about the allegations that she made about Jeff Clark. She stated that she was with a group of friends at a greyhound meeting. Later that night she was taken to the Warrnambool Botanical Gardens and pack-raped by a group of men who was led by Jeff Clark. Two weeks after that initial rape, she got into a car to talk to two of her attackers and two of the two girls were also in the car. She was driven to a local beach against her will where Jeff Clark was waiting for her. She was forced onto the beach at Lady Bay and Mr Clark raped her first and then she was raped by a further three men. 
So those two girls in the car that she wanted to go and chat to the attackers or talk to them about what had happened, they couldn't remember. They had no recollection of that night. In fact, one of the women said she'd never heard, knew anything about it. Um, and Carol went to school with these two girls and worked with one of them, but the girls said that they weren't friends with Carol. They were just acquaintances. Apparently, uh, they told the court that Carol had a reputation as being a bit loose with her morals, let's say. Uh, Carol told the court that she was raped six times. So raped six times, let's not go over that. You know, only two of them she's alleging was Jeff Clark. Both of the young girls in the car, they were friends of Jeff Clark's wife, Trudy. I don't think they were married then, but they were friends of Trudy, who if she wasn't Jeff Clark's wife then, she was later. And apparently these two girls referred to Jeff Clark as like a, a big brother. Um, and Jeff Clark was also, at the time when Carol's alleging these uh, rapes occurred, it was determined or proved, I think, that Jeff Clark was actually in Melbourne at some uh, football. He was living and working in Melbourne. I don't know if it was actually proved, but it was certainly um, alleged that he couldn't have done it because he was working in Melbourne. I'm actually not sure why Carol's allegations weren't tested in a criminal court. I'm sure they weren't, but they certainly were in a civil court. Um, both Carol and Joanne sought, I think I've gone over this about Joanne, but they sought an extension of time under the statute of limitations to enable personal personal injury claims against Jeff Clark to go ahead. They instituted independent civil proceedings uh, seeking unspecified damages for their physical injuries and long-term trauma and depression as a result of the alleged rapes. Now, under the Limitations of Actions Act 1958, proceedings for personal injuries couldn't be brought more than three years after the alleged incident, hence why they had to apply for an extension of time. But being a civil case, the jury makes its decision on the balance of probabilities, and that's a lot less stringent test than, say, for criminal cases in which juries have to reach a verdict beyond reasonable doubt. Carol's application for extension of time was accepted, but don't worry, Jeff Clark's legal team fought it to the very end. And I think where the High Court in the end agreed that Carol could apply for damages, but that's how much they fought it. In January 2007, a County Court of Victoria civil jury found that Jeff Clark had led two pack rapes in 1971. Carol Stingle suffered from PTSD. Um, she was awarded $20,000 in compensatory damages and around $71,000 to cover legal costs. During that 10-day trial, Jeff Clark's barrister said that there were major inconsistencies, which there did seem to be, I must admit, in her evidence. And he said that uh, Mr. Clark was, as I said, living and working and playing football in Melbourne at the time. And it was felt that his client had been demonised in the media and that the age had tried and convicted Jeff Clark. But as Carol Stingle's barrister said, that 
no sane person, and I tend to agree, would ever put themselves through what Carol Stingle had endured. And he said, her um, barrister said that it would be inconceivable that she would have done what she'd done if they were false allegations. And I tend to agree, why would these two women go through their grief, the trauma, the anxiety of all this if they were false, if they never happened. In February of 2007, Jeff Clark appealed the findings of the jury in Carol's matter. His notice of appeal alleged that the verdict to be perverse, (laughs) that the trial judge misdirected the jury regarding failures to call corroborative witnesses on the part of the complainant, uh, that the trial judge erred in ruling against the admission of certain evidence and that the fairness of the trial process had been compromised by pre-trial publicity. Uh, In December 2007, he lost his appeal against the damages awarded against him. To this day, I don't believe Jeff Clark has ever paid the $20,000 compensation or of the $300,000 or so that he... um, needed to pay her lawyers. Jeff Clark has said often that he felt the media hadn't been helpful in their reporting of his proceedings and said, amongst other things, that it was an injustice and a victory for nobody and it was the lowest point in the history of this country, in his view. Um, The verdict came more than five years after Miss Stingle first went public with her allegations against Jeff Clark. And as I said, she only acted after seeing media reports of the allegations made by Joanne McGuinness. Again, I know I've said it a few times, but I have to reiterate, Jeff Clark has never, ever admitted anything and he's always strongly denied all the allegations. I suppose in closing, it's one of the few times in my career where I'd have to say I probably got a bit of tunnel vision in a way. And I know I've said before, a good detective needs to be able to look outside that tunnel vision and not have tunnel vision. But I just... I had trouble seeing past why I really, yes, look, I liked Joanne and I liked Carol, but I just couldn't see why I could see the stress, I could see the fear, I could see the credibility I felt in them and I just couldn't understand why you would say something like this if it had never happened. Why would anybody put themselves through the trauma of reliving a sexual assault, I don't know, let's say for attention or to even a ledger or something? Like, I just can't imagine it would be something that anyone would want to go through. Just as another point of interest, that Jeff Clark declared bankruptcy in 2009 That was extended by five years in June 2012. Sorry, which it was extended by five years. And in June 2012, or 13, I think it was, he made an unsuccessful 
$1.25 million bid for a hotel in Warrnambool. Well, if that's the case of bankruptcy, I would probably wouldn't mind it myself. Uh, in August 2021, Jeff Clark was ordered to stand trial relating to the alleged misappropriation of about $2 million belonging to the Framlingham Aboriginal Trust over a period of 30 years, along with his wife, Trudy, and son, Jeremy. Again, this hasn't been tested in court. Yes, it's obviously gone through a committal stage because he's been ordered to stand trial, but it hasn't been tested in front of a judge and jury. They are allegations, but that's that's a fair allegation, isn't it? Anyway, look, I want you all to have a happy and safe Christmas, uh, New Year, and looking forward to another great year of podcasts uh, and even some live shows. <laughs> uh, I just want to make a special thank you or say a special thank you to Craig for his editing expertise. There is nothing that he can't do and he weaves his little bit of magic or a lot of magic every week. So thank you to Craig. Uh, he's there whenever I need him. Craig, you're going to have to delete this. <laughs> Craig, add that. <laughs> he's always there. And just to the boys at Black Salmon, Paul, Nick and Boone, uh, thanks for everything. Thanks for bringing it all together and believing in me and having the faith in me. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Let's hope 2022 is better than 2021. Thank you. Bye. Hey, it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, Hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave a rating and even a review and please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Hello, guess who? Just a quick interruption here to let you know you can now become a Narelle Fraser Interviews Patreon. How exciting! Simply go to www.patreon, that's P for Peter, A T R E O N for Narelle.com and search for Narelle Fraser Interviews. And to all of you out there who continue to support me, thank you so much. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.